0: Okay, so so this week's Torah portion, Baalotcha, comes right after the end of last week's Torah portion. And the end of last week's Torah portion, the last 89 verses, talks about how the prince of each tribe, each tribe had one prince, the leader of the tribe, and they, together, all 12 of them, decided that they were going to bring inauguration for the altar. And and they asked Moshe, and Moshe had to wait to see if God was okay with it. And the question was, by Moses, were they all going to do it in one day, do everything together? Because really, inauguration is only the first day. The second day of an inauguration isn't really an inauguration anymore because the altar was already used. But God said no. God decreed that all 12 days will be a one long, consistent inauguration. And each prince brought the, they brought the different sacrifices, different, different gifts and different incense and different vessels, all as an inauguration for the altar. And that's why it says, Zot this is the inauguration of the outside altar where all the sacrifices were brought. Okay. Then that it finishes that story. This week begins with four verses talking about Aaron kindling the menorah. And right away, our sages want to know why why are we having this here? We already learned. We learned in Pasha Tetzalba. We learned already all the laws about the menorah, that, that, you know, how it has to burn and everything. Um, uh, So why, why is it here? So our sages tell us that Aaron felt bad. Aaron said, you have all the tribes that are participating in this great, great procedure celebration of the inauguration of the altar, and my tribe doesn't have any participation. Now, why did Aaron feel so bad about that? Because Aaron took the blame for why his, he and his entire tribe cannot participate. Being that Aaron was the one who was the leader of the Jewish people while Moses was up on top of the mountain receiving the Torah. So Aaron was the one that was responsible for the Jewish people when they made the golden calf. So he felt that the reason why God isn't allowing him and because of him, his whole tribe, not to participate specifically in the inauguration, even though they were doing the service, but they weren't doing the inauguration, was because of him. Hence, God tells God tells Aaron, Shelecha Godol Mishalahem. You should know that your inauguration is even greater than their inauguration because you will kindle the menorah. The simple reason that's usually given to what makes kindling the menorah greater than the altar, the simple reason that that they give is because the altar was only in service during the times of the Holy Temple. But today, because of Hanukkah, the menorah goes on forever. That's one interpretation. I learned this beautiful teaching from the Rebbe this week where the Rebbe says that, you know, in general, what would be the question? Of course, it's greater because it is being, if the menorah is inside the Holy Temple while outside the altar that they were inaugurating was outside of the holy temple. And then the Rebbe says, but on the other hand, sacrifices are even greater. So it's the back and forth of discussion. And the bottom line is that there's many explanations and the Rebbe gives a beautiful insight to why Hashem told Aaron that your inauguration through preparing the menorah and doing everything. See, the other, the other princes Even though they brought the sacrifices, they couldn't actually perform them. It had to be done by the Kohen. So they didn't get to do everything. While Aaron, he's the one that did everything from preparing the menorah and, and, and cleaning it and setting it up and then kindling it, it was all Aaron. So that's another reason why yours is greater than theirs. Then there's the Kabbalistic reason because ultimately speaking, Aaron's job by kindling the menorah was to elevate all the tribes of Israel. So really, his inauguration is what elevated everyone else's inauguration to a total higher level of transparency, nullification, and openness and spirituality. Now, I'm going to just share with you a little bit more about this menorah, even though it's only four verses and there's so much to talk about, because there's an amazing teaching here. And I sent it out in the weekly email. If you want to read the article that went out, I wrote an article called Who Kindles Your Candles, Your Lights. Now, the menorah represents the Jewish people. And that's why the menorah has an unbelievable paradox. On one hand, the menorah cannot be soldered together from different pieces it has to all be banged out of one solid piece of gold. So the entire menorah is a oneness, a miksha achas. You don't have that in any other vessel in the Holy Temple. All the other vessels were made up of parts that were put together, not so the menorah. The menorah specifically, the verse tells us that you take a certain weight of gold, a kikar of gold, and um, that also includes the other vessels of the menorah, but basically, you take that and you have to bank out the menorah. So you don't make six branches and then solder it to the center branch. No, everything has to be molded out of this one solid piece of gold. So on one hand, the menorah represents the ultimate unity of oneness. On the other hand, specifically, the menorah has seven different branches. So there's three to the right three to the left, and the one in the center. So on the one hand, you have the oneness. On the other hand, you have the exact opposite. You have specifically identifying that there are seven different lights that are going to be on the menorah. Now, what is the deeper meaning of that? The deeper meaning of that, according to Jewish mysticism, beautifully explained in Hasidus, is that the menorah represents the Jewish people the jewish people are all one however because there are seven different emotion emanations in kabbalah we refer to it as kindness strictness strength justice you have compassion you have a, a, a victory you have, a grat- you have a gratitude you have gratitude um, you have splendor you have um, you have um, you have foundation, which is commitment, and then you have sovereignty, which is expression. So because there are seven different emotion emanations, and everyone's soul has a source in one of those seven, and in those seven itself, there's levels upon levels upon levels upon levels. So one of the classical ways for us to explain this is that you had two students from the same two teachers. Shemaya of Talya, were the teachers of both Shammai and Hillel. And you could not find two people that had such opposite views of the Torah. Hillel and Shammai are from the two famous sages and their schools were from the famous two schools that argue almost on everything. Hillel is always lenient, Shammai is always strict. There's only seven exceptions to that rule in the entire Talmud. Now the question is, how can that be? They both learned the Torah from the same people. They received the same Shi'ur. How can they take it so opposite? And the answer is because Hillel's soul came from the first branch of the menorah. Hence, he perceived everything through kindness, love, leniency. Shammai, on the other hand, his soul came from the second branch of the menorah, which is Givurah, which is <laughs> defined as strength, strictness, justice. Hence, he always perceived the Torah from a stringent perspective. So both of them are right, but they both are perceiving the Torah through the specific source of the personality of their own soul. And that's why we say, Elu elu divre lekim chayim, These and these are both the words of the living God. So even though the bottom line is that we have to pass a ruling, which one we should follow, but it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's that both of them are right, because both of them are different emanations, the way they shine and perceive the Torah. Now, therefore, what is Aaron being told? Aaron is being told to kindle the candles of the menorah. So I wanna share a couple of, without getting too much into detail here, I wanna share a couple of things that are so imperative to understand. Aaron was not told, even though he himself was a Cohen and he's kindness. And on the other hand, his whole job was sacrifices, elevation from below to above, which is the, the second branch. But nevertheless, Aaron, being a shepherd to the entire Jewish people was told, you should know that you are not here to change anyone. You are here to kindle, elevate, empower everyone for who they are. And there's an unbelievable teaching of the Rebbe, of blessed and saintly memory, where the Rebbe says the job is to connect people to God and get out of the way. There's another directive from the Rebbe. When someone asks you what mitzvah should they do, you don't tell them the mitzvah which you think is more talking to you. No. Try to understand who the other person is. Try them to find the mitzvah that touches them most and have them start from that mitzvah. So in other words, Hashem is telling Aaron, you are to kindle seven candles, not one candle. Because your job is to help everyone get in touch with the flame of their soul, the paradigm of their soul, the emanation. I mean, we all have a bit of every emanation, but there's one that is dominant. And hence we each have to find the dominant emanation of our soul, and that is how we illuminate the divinity of our soul, and the words of the Torah into the world. Now, so step number one, Aaron was told, kindle all of them. Don't change anyone. Don't make priorities over one over the other. Your job is to equally kindle every single one of them. Now, what is the definition of kindling in the deeper sense of Kabbalah and Hasidis? So the first thing you had to do was prepare the menorah. How did you prepare the menorah? By having the wick and the oil. So the wick represents the body, but the oil, the oil in Kabbalah, Shemen, refers to Chachma. It is the highest of all the Sfirot, all the emanations. Now the word Chachma comes from the two words Koach Ma. The potential of what? In other words, when someone doesn't even realize that there's something going on, they don't even ask what. But then there's that level of total nullification where you do know that something's going on, but you're humble enough to know that you're not quite wrapping your head around it. So at this point, you have the gift of simply asking ma, what? This is the power of Chachma, the oil, where the oil perceives that there is the presence of the Ain Sof, the infinite, but it has no perception over what infinite is. Hence, the presence of the infinite does nothing more and nothing less than bring about an absolute humility and transparency. That's the way we start learning Torah. We start learning Torah not by, I'm going to tell you what it means. I'm going to figure it out. The first thing we need to know is that the Torah is the infinite divinity of God. How can the finite human mind ever really wrap itself around the infinite divinity and wisdom of God? So what does happen is, the first thing is, that everyone is elevated out of their own arrogance of the I, the capital I, I understand, I'll teach you, I'll understand, I'll explain it to you. No. The first thing Aaron does is he brings oil. Oil is chachma. Chachma is transparency and nullification. Koachma. Moses, when the Jews complained to him that he should bring this and that, he answered, we are but what? It's all God. It's not us. That's the first thing Aaron does. And by Aaron doing that, he elevates all the seven branches of the menorah that they're not stuck in I am I and only I, but rather they all become transparent to have the illumination of the aint Sof within their soul, the infinite God within their soul. Yes, they're going to express it through their way, But there's going to be that fundamental fundamental humility and transparency that my job is not to explain myself, but my job is to allow Hashem's words to flow through me. So that is the power of the menorah. Now, another thing I want to share, which is of utmost importance. Why does it say, Baha'alotcha? The men will remember that on Hanukkah, we make the bracha lahadlik ner Hanukkah. We don't say lahaalot ner Hanukkah. The women will remember that every Friday night you have the great blessing lahadlik ner Shabbat Kodesh. We don't say lahaalot to make ascend. So how come over here the wording of the Torah is precisely bahaalotcha to us make ascend? And Rashi calls our sages that says. That teaches us that if it would have said la hadlik to light, that means if Aaron would have lit it, walked away, and it would have gone out right away, he did his mitzvah. He doesn't have to relight it, he lit it. However, when it says Baha'alotcha, make ascend, we learn that Aaron cannot leave the candle until it is self-sustainable, it is burning brightly and it won't go out. What does that teach us? That teaches us the most fundamental and important lesson in human relationships. The greatest crime that any human can do to another human is to create a dependency. To create that the other person consistently needs me. The greatness of parenting is, I heard this saying once and I really like it, the job of a parent is to make their position unnecessary. If at the age of 30, your child still, you're, you're, he depends upon you. He's still living in the house. He still needs your money. He still needs you to answer him and guide him. He won't make any decision on his or her own. Then the parent was not a good parent and was not successful in parenting. The job of a parent is And it's the same thing When it comes to The administration of a company To empower the employee in the workers Not to have them always having to ask everything The same thing with teacher and students The same thing with spouses It's always important To give the autonomy Teach the other That they should be able to stand on their own even in charity, which is the greatest charity, is the one where you give a person a job. Because if you give them money, they have to consistently coming back to you. You create a dependency. But if you give them a job or you find them, you help them invest in a business, now they don't need, they're standing on their own two feet. That's what Bahat means. Okay, so everything I just shared with you now, was all just on the first four verses of the Torah portion. Okay? Then there's the inauguration of the Levites. Just like every single vessel in the Holy Temple had to be anointed, so too the Levites, which are considered, the entire tribe, the Levi, the Kohanim, the Kohanim, Adirway, the Levi, Adirway, specifically there had to be an anointment. There had to be an appointment where they now became Vessels of the Holy Temple, servants of the people serving in the Holy Temple. Okay. Um, after that, there's, we're taught that the Levites had a five-year education period. So the Levi worked from the age of 30 to 50. That was the primary years of the work. But at the age of 25, they began their education for five years, and then at 30, they went into service. And then comes the next Torah portion, which talks about the next piece, which talks about that there were a couple of Jews who by the, the the Jews came out on Passover. The next year was the first time that they celebrated the holiday of Passover as the holiday commemorating when they went out of Egypt, because the year previously, they actually went out of Egypt. So that Passover was a huge thing. It was the first time the Jewish people were celebrating their first birthday as a Jewish people. Now, there were certain Jews that were impure. They were impure because they were doing the mitzvah of taking care of the dead. And the sages have different opinions. Some say it was the ones that took care of of Aaron's two sons when they died at the inauguration. But either way, it wasn't, when I say impure, I don't mean through sin specifically. I mean that they, they were impure. Halakhically, they were impure. They couldn't enter the holy temple. They couldn't eat from the flesh of a sacrifice. And hence, they came to Moses and they said, Lama Nigara, why are we less than? This isn't just any holiday. This isn't just any sacrifice that we're not going to participate. We're not participating in the most fundamental holiday of the Jewish people, our very birthday. Lama Nigara, why should we be left out? So Moses told them, wait, and I hear what God will answer. And our sages say, how fortunate was Moses that he was so sure that when he turns to God, God is going to answer him. Fortunate is the student that knows that the teacher will answer. And Hashem actually tells them that you should create the second hot Passover, which is exactly 30 days after the first Passover. Now, just that you know, on the second Passover, A, it's a one evening thing. B, you don't have to worry about chametz. The thing that you have to do is, in the time of the Holy Temple, was those who couldn't bring a sacrifice in the first one, in the second Passover of 30 days later, they would eat matzah, they would eat the bitter herbs, together with the Passover lamb. Okay? And we'll talk about this more at length in a couple of moments. Then, after that, we go ahead and we talk about how Hashem set up once the temple was stood and it was inaugurated so there was the cloud upon it and that's the way the Jewish people knew that the presence of God was and in the way the cloud was positioned they knew whether they should be camping or they should be you know breaking camp and start traveling okay now after that we have the next Torah portion that talks about Moses having two trumpets. Now, how did they, how was Moses able to let the Jewish people know to gather together, he had to tell them something or only the elders should gather together or that it's time to move or that all of that was done through trumpets. So Hashem tells Moses, you shall make for yourself two trumpets. Now, because the word says you shall make for yourself we learn out a couple of things. One of the things we learn out with is that when Moses passed away, those trumpets were buried with him. They were not used because Hashem said, you, I say, make for you. Now, I want to share with you, it seems like such a simple thing, right? They didn't have no, no uh, text messaging, WhatsApp. They didn't have, uh, you know, no alarm systems. So how was Moses going to gather together the people? So there were the trumpets, the trumpets, and then there was the chauffeur. I want to share with you from the teaching of Rabdov Bear of Masrich. He was the student and successor of the Baal Shem Tov, the teacher and predecessor of the first Lubavitch Rebbe. He says like this, You shall make for yourself two trumpets. He says, take the word and break it into two. Read it as half-forms. Now let's read that verse. God tells Moses, you shall make two half forms. And the Mazrit Shemagit explains, what Hashem is telling Moshe is that your job is to realize that God is a half a form, so to speak. The Jewish people are a half a form. And these two half a forms have to be united to make one whole. Make for yourself two half forms. And you should know that your job is always to make sure that these two half forms are in unity as one whole. Okay, then it talks about the traveling, how they actually traveled. Then we have the Jews complaining. And because the Jews start complaining, there is a outbreak amongst the Jewish people and people were dying. And... They were complaining that we don't like this mana. This mana isn't, we've missed the good old days eating real food in Egypt. Now, it's interesting. I'm not sure if you people are aware, but the entire movie series, The Matrix, were made by two Russian brothers that dabbled with Kabbalah. And the story they're trying to tell there is their interesting perception of what Kabbalah is saying you will remember that those people who were the enlightened group they never ate food they ate like these little packets that was basically just sustenance and they were taught that the entire concept of taste and texture and all of that was really an illusion of the physical realm but in essence Really, it's just about the spark of God that gives sustenance. An interesting thing, that when you learn Hasidus and Kabbalah, you can see what those two writers slash producers were trying to teach. Now, why am I sharing with you about the matrix right now? Because let's talk about the mana. What was the problem of the mana? Why the Jews should have been amazingly happy because we know that the mana was able to taste like whatever you wanted it to taste besides seven harmful things to a pregnant woman. So they had anything they wanted. On top of that, the bread is called light bread because unlike physical food in which the body only extracts the the nutrients, the minerals, and the rest has to be pushed out of the body, the bowel movement. The power of the mana was that because it came from heaven, it was absolutely pure, and they never had to go to the bathroom. Like if you you buy vitamins, you'll know that one of the big things with vitamins is that you have to get the finest vitamin that actually stays in your body you'll notice that certain vitamin C's, when you take them, your urine gets very yellow simply because the body is just passing it right through. So you have to know which ones are soluble. The the beauty of the mana was that the mana was 100% soluble. There was no body movements because nothing had to be pushed out. Everything was absorbed by the body. Now, with this being in place, I want to share with you just my understanding on what the Jews were complaining about with the manna. What I'm going to say now sounds kind of coarse, but it's, it's the reality for us physical human beings. You know, when you go to a restaurant and you ate about two dishes too many, and like, oh my God, I'm so stuffed. So even though we're like, oh, this feels terrible, but you're smiling and glowing because you feel that you ate and you're so stuffed. Oh my God, I can't fit another anything into me. There's this perverse, weird sense of pleasure in being that stuffed. And the reason is very simple because then you feel the total egocentric arrogance of the physicality of you being. When you eat just enough, you're not stuffed, you're actually still hungry a little bit, but you feel that you were re-energized. You have koyach. And you get up from the table and you walk away. There's a certain level of, of humility Self nullification, transparency that it's all about the nutrients, the godly spark, serving God. We eat to live, not live to eat. Eating is about energy. It's not about, you know, emotional uh, eating or, or, or feeling the, the pleasure of self. And that's what the mana did for them. It denied them that having to open up your belt in the middle of the meal and feeling like, oh, I'm just gonna have one more, I I hope I can get it in, and then I'm just gonna have to just lay back on my recliner and then maybe even fall asleep because I'm so stuffed. The mana carried none of that coarseness. I think that's what they were complaining about. They also complained about where's the meat. Now, our sages tell us that from the mana perspective, God, they're asking for mana originally and then they're, they're talking against the mana wasn't good because you know you don't, what do they say? You don't look a gift, a, a, a gift horse in the mouth. Hashem is giving you such a higher level of existence. You're complaining that you want a lower level. But the meat was a real problem. Why was the meat a real problem? Simple. Number one, you don't need it to survive. And even more than that, You want meat? Every single Jew was full of livestock. What are you complaining Hashem should provide? Go ahead and eat from your own livestock. That means you're stum looking to fetch and complain. And that's why there was a bad reaction. The Jewish people um, died from eating the quail. Okay, let's go ahead and move further. At this point, when, when Hashem tells Moses, I'm going to give them quail, and they're going to have for 30 days and it's going to be coming out of the ears and everything. Moshe says, where am I supposed to give meat? How am I supposed to give 600,000 people? It's really more. That's just men to the age of 260. Where am I supposed to give them meat? And the obvious question is, what do you mean where are you supposed to give them meat? God, God's going to provide. God's telling you he's going to give. So you're asking where you're going to give. And what's your question? I don't know how many billions of people there were on the planet then, but God sustains all the creatures, all the human race, and you're asking how God is going to provide meat for the Jewish people in the desert? Therefore, Hasidus and Kabbalah explained that Moses was asking another question. My job is to be a spiritual leader. My job is to elevate the people from the physical to the spiritual, from the coarseness to the transparency. I, I, I'm supposed to be up in heaven. I'm supposed to be, I mean, up in heaven, meaning that I'm supposed to be their spirituality. How do you expect me to lower myself now? And this is what I need to do now. Now my job is to feed them meat. How am I supposed to do that? My, my, how do you expect my mind to be in total self-nullification, transparency, prophecy, thinking only about spirituality, and now i got to figure out how to feed meat to the people? So Hashem says, He answers him, Hayada Hashem Well, what is my hand, so to speak, God has no hands, short, you think I can't do this? And Kabbalah Chassidus explains that God's telling Moses, You think that I'm stuck with being either spiritual or physical? You think you're stuck with being either spiritual or physical? Because you're connected to me, I can have your physicality be completely aligned and transparent to your spirituality. Now, I wanna just give you a simple example what that would mean for you and me. Again, going back to eating. You can eat because it's Shabbos Kodesh and it's a mitzvah to eat, have people by your table. And for most people, you know, if, if you really have a, a refinement to yourself, the family dinner, the Shabbat dinner, has very little what to do with the food. Yeah, there's food going on, but it's all about the Shabbos, the singing, the talking, the words of Torah, spending quality family time, We happen to be eating. What does that mean? What that means is the food on your Shabbos plate, I mean, in in real decent, higher educated families, they're not discussing every dish, whether it's too salty, it's this, it's that. They're eating, but the conversation is a far greater refinement. That means that even in our eating, we can be spiritual. And that's what God was telling Moses. Nevertheless God tells Moses That I'm going to have you Appoint 70 elders And they will stand In between you and the people And God says I will take from your spirit And place it upon them And our sages say That Moses was like a candle From which you lit 70 candles So the original candle loses nothing But 70 candles now get lit Now Little problem If you have 12 tribes, and you want to have an equal number of elders from each one, you have to have 72. You cannot divide 70 into 12. You can divide 72 into 12. That would be 6 from each tribe. So therefore, Moses had to take 6 people from each tribe and in a hat he had to put 72 different little pieces of parchment. Two of them would be blank. And the two people that pulled out the blanks wouldn't become elders. Who were those two people? Eldad and Medad. Two people. But because they were part of the process, they did experience prophecy. Now I'm going to share with you something that most people don't know and, and, and not everyone agrees with this. This happens to be one teaching of a medrash. Most, most teachings do not carry this thought but you should know that those that say that Eldad and Medad were half brothers to Moses because Moses told his father that when the Torah is given your marriage is going to be prohibited why so because Moses's father Amram married his aunt Yocheved now, our uncle's allowed to marry a nephew, our aunt is not allowed to marry, uh, I'm sorry, our uncle's allowed to marry a niece, but our aunt is allowed to, not allowed to marry a nephew. Hence, Moses said that now it's okay because it's before the Torah is given, but you should know that once the Torah is given, this marriage is going to be prohibited and forbidden. And there's, according to this one teaching, when he heard that he got divorced and he married a different woman. And he had other children, that was Elder and Maidad. So there's one opinion, a teaching, a measure that says Elder and Maidad were actually half brothers of Moses. But be it as it may, in most, in most, uh, in most teachings, it's not that way. But either way, Elder and Maidad were the ones that pulled out the blanks. And by the way, they were the ones that never wanted to become, they were very, very humble. And they did not, leadership is not for us. We're not the ones that should be doing this. So God kind of gave them what they want. Let them live quiet, humble lives, spiritual lives. And they did experience prophecy. And what was the prophecy that they had? They experienced a prophecy in which they foresaw that in 40 years, Moses would not be the one to take the Jews into, into Israel. It would be Joshua. When Joshua heard this, John, when, when, the, when the, the people came, the person came to, to tell Moses that they're prophesying that you're going to die and this and that, and Joshua said, stop them. And Moses answered, why stop them? If this is prophecy, then if only every Jew was a prophet, why would I stop them? Because the prophecy they're giving is less than tasty, you know, pleasant for me? That's not what it's about. It's about prophecy. I want to share with you, I read a book, a biography of Abraham Lincoln. It was published by Barnes and Nobles. What was magnificent about this book was that the entire book just quoted letters and different um, transcripts, different, different writings, manuscripts they found written by Abraham Lincoln. And in between, they would just say, who is he writing to? What was he writing to? The one manuscript, I mean, obviously one of the famous things is this letter to, to Grant of what was going on in the war. But they found this manuscript, obviously it's in the Congress Library, and the Congressional Library. And I'm reading it, I'm like, oh my. It's smack in the middle of the war. It does not look good. In the you know, the war was not looking good for, for Lincoln. And he writes like this. He writes, ultimately speaking, if the South wins, it's God's will. If it's God's will, why should I not be okay with it? Wow. Amazing, amazing. If only I can live like that with everything that happens in my life. But that's what Moses is telling Joshua. Why stop them? It's prophecy. May everyone give prophecy. It's not about me. Okay, anyway, let's go ahead and and close it up. The last, I'm just gonna jump quickly to the last story. The last story is that Miriam gossiped about, about, um, about Moses, her brother to Aaron. What was the gossip, what happened? What happened was that our sages tell us when Sipporah, the wife of Moses heard that Elder the Medad was giving prophecy when she was sitting next to her, her, her sister-in-law Miriam, she slipped and said, wow, I feel sorry for their wives. And Miriam said, why? So she said, because once they become prophets, their husbands are not gonna be with them in, in physical relationships. And Miriam said, why? You know, Miriam was a prophet. Aaron was a prophet. And they still had relationships with their spouses. And she found out from Zipporah that Moses, from the Mount Sinai experience, stopped having physical relationships with his wife Zipporah. So she was telling Aaron, why is Moses doing this? And immediately God appeared in a prophecy to all three. Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. And what happened was that Miriam and Aaron, the night before, had a relationship with their spouses, and they weren't able to go through the whole mikvah process, and therefore the fact that prophecy happened threw them off, and they started screaming, mikvah, mikvah, mikvah. And God, right then and there, answered their question. And God tells them, how could you not be afraid to talk against Moses? You know that Moses does nothing on his own. Number one. Number two, you have set times when I give you prophecy. So you know when you could have a relationship and when you have to abstain in order to be pure to receive my prophecy. But Moses never knows because I speak to him face to face, like a friend to a friend. And hence, you had no business comparing yourself and definitely not judging him. Now, I wanna just tell you an interesting point of the story, which is so important. And that is that God did not admonish Aaron and Miriam in front of Moses. That Moses shouldn't know what happened in order that you shouldn't be upset at them. How interesting, how interesting when we become peacemakers, how much damage we do by thinking, oh no, everything has to be open. You have to know what he said about you. She has to know what she said about you. And No, come on. If you're focused on peace, then you don't have to do any collateral damage. There are things that you discuss discuss privately with a person and things you discuss as a group. Okay, with that being said, I want to just close it up with that, um, with the topic I chose to speak about tonight, which is Pesach Sheni. You know, we're used to, in the the age of technology, we're used to shooting out programs and then we send out patches. You know, there's the beta version and you're going to have a patch. And why do you have a patch? Because people are not perfect and the original program has glitches and we wouldn't know that until we gave out the beta version and people started using it and now we see what the glitches are and we start sending out patches. What happened with Pesach Sheni? So the whole story is interesting. There is no holiday in the Torah that came because the people demanded it. Holidays are given by God. God told Moses, tell the Jewish people, seven days you shall celebrate Passover. And God told Moses, on the 50th day, you shall have the day of Shavuot. And God told Moses, on the first day of the seventh month, you'll have Rosh Hashanah. The 10th day of the seventh month, you're going to have Yom Kippur. On the 15th day, you're going to celebrate for seven days, the Sukkot. And the eighth day is going to be Shemini Atzeret. You didn't have, the Jews were complaining, how come we don't have a holiday? We need a vacation. No. The only holiday that came from below to above is Pesach Sheni. So it seems to be that Pesach Sheni was, oops, a glitch. We have to send out a patch. That means in God's original plan, everyone would be per- pure and perfect. And the first Passover would be enough. Oops. Beta version Pesach 101 showed that some people couldn't participate. People are imperfect. Hence, we have to send out a patch called, please install Pesach 102. Have Pesach Sheni. You can't say that by God. You can't say that God didn't foresee and it wasn't the original plan and God has to re-navigate because of things unforeseen. No, 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 not at all. So if so, what is Pesach Sheni all about? And why didn't God tell Moses right away when he gave him the first Passover? He should have right away said, and part of this is that whoever is not going to be able to participate in the first Passover, they're going to have a second chance 30 days later. And here is the answer the answer is literally the title that I gave these words Born to Make Mistakes. In heaven, the soul was perfect in a perfect environment. The angels are perfect in a perfect environment. Hence, when the angels saw that Moses came up to heaven to receive the Torah, they told Hashem, Give your glory in heaven. Give it to perfect beings in a perfect environment. Why are you giving it to imperfect beings in an imperfect environment? They're born to make mistakes. Your Torah is not meant to have people make mistakes with. That's what the angel said. God tells Moses, answer them. Moses enters the debate. Moses comes out victorious. The angels agree, and the Torah is given to us. So what I want to share is You know, I I once put it in a meme like this. Second plan, I'm sorry, plan B, the original plan. The original plan wasn't plan A, because if the original plan was plan A, then plan A would have worked. The original plan was plan B, but in order to get to plan B, you had to first have plan A, Plan A should not be able to work out completely. Hence, we now have the original plan, which was plan B. Let me share it with you like this. God's original plan was that the Jews should receive the second set of tablets. But in order to receive the second set of tablets, they had to first have the first set of tablets, botch it up, Moses breaks it, and now they can get the second set of tablets. And hence, our sages tell us that were we to have had only the first set of tablets, we would have only had the five books of Moses, the book of Joshua. We would not have the 24 books of the oral law. Neither would we have the infinite amount of teachings of Talmud and Braista and on and on and on. So hence, the original plan was plan B. But for plan B to happen, there had to first be the plan A, the mess-up of plan A, and hence plan B. What does that mean to us on a practical level? What it means is that, ultimately speaking, what God wants from us is not the perfection of Torah and mitzvot. Rather, what God wants from us is the supra-perfection of teshuvah. What we offer God that the angels cannot offer God is teshuvah. Because an angel can't do repentance because to do repentance means you had to botch up. And if you don't botch up, you don't have the true simple embodiment of the mitzvah of doing teshuvah. Hence what we offer God is teshuvah. Let's understand this a little deeper. When we do Torah mitzvot, it's not what we give God. God gave us Torah mitzvot and we're accepting what he gave us. But when we batch up and then we do teshuvah and we make from darkness light, that's what we are giving God. God gave us the potential of darkness which manifested itself in our behavior and then we do teshuvah transforming that darkness into light. Hence, we give God what no other creature, supernal spiritual being could give God. Hence, we now understand that Pesach Sheni is the true holiday of the Jewish people. And the proof is in the pudding. We had the first Passover which led to the first set of tablets, and that should have been perfect. We're taught that the original sin of the tree of knowledge was completely removed. And we were perfect. And then came the golden calf, which means that perfect is not sustainable. Which means if it's not sustainable, then that that isn't the original plan, because the original plan is a sustainable plan. Hence, the original plan is that there should be plan A. Plan A shouldn't be sustainable, but it affected us. It elevated us. And now when we botch it up, we still have it in our DNA. So even after we botch up, we now can move on to plan B and do Teshuvah, which was ultimately the original plan of God. Hence, that's the beauty of Pesach Sheini. And now we'll understand why that holiday didn't come from God to us. It came from us screaming out to God and God responding to us. Because every other holiday is Torah and mitzvot. Torah and mitzvot is given from above to below. Pesach Sheni is all about Teshuvah. Teshuvah doesn't come from above to below. It's us screaming out from the depth of distance and darkness, Loma how can it be that we did something that created a point of no return? We want to return to God. We want to do Teshuva. Only when the Jewish people cried that out to God, God said, now I can give you the holiday, which is all about Teshuva. Okay, thank you.